In this second podcast recording of the Lent Course 2012, Vanessa Alston explores the theme of losing and finding ourselves in the desert, the nature of self, and our relationship to ourselves. Some of you may have looked on the Moot blog, um, but I did highlight the irony, really, that has really struck me this week about organising a course around silence. (laughs) But also that I've been amazed at how much has been written and said about silence. And, you know, and how much there is to say. Um, and, in fact, my challenge this week has really been trying to say not too much and not overloading you because there is so much that I sort of would like to share with you in some ways because I've been delving into all these wonderful books and people have written all these things. So I spent most of the day thing, well, like, that's just too much. I've got to take it all back, back out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's, funny enough, there is a lot to say about silence. But I think, like, you know, like I said on the blog, I think it's a bit like words, really, that are around this big space or abyss. And that in some ways, the only way into silence is to fall into it. And I think what I want to keep highlighting is the experiential aspect of this, that we have to actually engage in this as a practice and as a discipline if we're to gain the knowledge that only comes through personal experience, so that you have an ongoing encounter that continues to shape and liberate you. I can't give you this experience. You have to set out on your own journey and your own discovery. And I also want to say that, you know, that you don't have to have engaged in hours and hours of solitude and silence before you come here. You know, you might only have had a few minutes here and there And you might have struggled to find the time, or even when you're in that time, to start to feel like you're entering into any kind of real stillness or silence. And that this Lent course is, in a sense, a space to reflect on our relationship to solitude and silence. Even if it means asking, why do I find it so difficult to engage? What's going on here? And I guess I also want to remind us that this journey is unique to each person and that we each start um, from where we are and with what works for us. There isn't a one-size-fits-all. And last week, I talked about two ways of being in silence. And one I called exterior silence. And that's where solitude and silence sort of provides a backdrop to our prayer and our inner life. And it's a kind of way of being where we are sort of, we're still active in our faculties. And I'm going to quote from Cynthia Bourgeau just to explain, because she says it very well from um, Centering Prayer. She says that this way of praying and being engages our reason, memory, imagination, feelings, and will. These are all the normal human operating systems that connect us to the outer world and to our own interior life. They are the wonderful tools we've been given to make our way in this world and to experience it richly from the perspective of being a unique person with unique gifts to share and a unique relationship to God. And this kind of prayer 
has been called cataphatic or via positiva because the idea is we're using our senses, our ears, our eyes, our thought, our imagination, everything that sort of makes us active in terms of our human faculties is engaged and actually most of what we do in worship, in church and in prayer engages us at this level of awareness. And many forms of meditation, a bit like the guided meditation I did with you last week, means a kind of focused and concentrated work with your imagination. And all of these things are really good and vital because you know, we need to engage with our thoughts and feelings. And vitally, I think, our bodies as well and our senses to help us discover what is it that we are really feeling and thinking, to help us go a bit deeper beyond who we are, beyond the immediate demands of our lives. And I think that probably for most of us, this is where we need to start, um, that we need to engage with this before we take the step of going to the other kind of silence, which is the silence where we start to actually let go of those things. Um, and this is what I was, I guess, the cataphatic is what I was talking about, about the kinds of things you can do before you try and do nothing. So for some of us, that's where we need to start, and it's where we need to stay for a while. But the other way of being in silence, which I called interior silence, is also known as apophatic prayer, or the via negativa. And this form of prayer does not make use of our faculties. It bypasses our capacities for reason, imagination, visualization, emotion, and memory. We deliberately seek to let go of the stuff of our conscious mind and feelings, the stuff that naturally comes to the surface. And this form of prayer can feel like diving in at the deep end into emptiness or nothingness. But those that have traveled this path before us tell us that it is far from empty and void because it too makes use of our faculties but ones that are much more subtle than we're used to and which we normally block by our over-reliance on, on our more usual mental and effective processing. It's a bit like learning to see in the dark because we're developing our spiritual senses. And there are different ways into this kind of space. And last week I talked about centering prayer and I really recommend that practice and I really recommend this book that I talked about last week. But there are other methods um, that to take us into what we might call interior silence and stillness, where we're going beyond the busyness of our minds, thoughts and feelings. And one method is a form of rhythm prayer um, which is a short form of words that make up a prayer that are repeated gently over and over again within oneself. And this is the way in which the orthodox Christian tradition um, chooses to focus, it's the way they choose to focus the attention and begin to make the mind still. And this is what this tradition calls this practice about bringing the mind into the heart. It's to a place of standing with the mind in the heart before God. In this tradition, silent prayer is the prayer of the heart. 
and we engage in it by descending into the heart. And the heart in this sense is really the innermost part of ourselves. It's probably more down here than it is up here. And it's the, this inner place where we meet with God in a profound and transformative way. And again, this understanding of prayer is that prayer is not essentially something we do with our minds nor with our words, but prayer is something we do with our hearts, with our inmost being. But for most of us, our hearts are not that easily accessible. We actually don't find it hard. We don't find it that easy to get to this place. And there's a lovely quote from um, a previous Archbishop, Michael Ramsey. And an American reporter asked him whether he'd prayed that day and for how long he'd talked to God. And he replied, I talked to God for one minute, but it took me 29 minutes to get there. <laughs> and I think that's a kind of realistic understanding of sometimes what this journey is, is like into the inner self. And many contemplatives talk about this kind of prayer, and it, it sounds simple, <laughs> but I think the reality is a bit different. They see it as a way of just looking, gazing, and being in love. That I look at the one who, who looks back at me with a love I can hardly begin to know and grasp. And it's almost a kind of prayer that's like a gift, because we're just being in the presence of another. And it sort of mirrors the silence that exists in all truly human loving relationships, where you don't have to speak, where work, you know, words are no longer needed. And I think that this is a way to get beyond ourselves, and it's a way that we give ourselves. It's the way we learn to make space for the other, where we come home to God and ourselves. But what can get a bit confusing in this area of apophatic prayer is, or what's difficult, is what I said about how do we access this mysterious place of the heart, the inner self, or the true self? How do we understand what the self is? And there's lots of terms um, that are used, things like letting go of the false self, transcending the ego, finding the deeper self, the true self, descending into the heart. So this week, I thought it might be helpful for us to reflect on what is our relationship to ourselves and what do we mean when we talk about a self? Who is the me that I take into the desert? What is my relationship to myself? Where am I hiding? Am I who I think I am? And many have reflected that the search for self and the search for God are deeply intertwined. And I'm aware that in this area of self, we are touching on mystery and that language can't completely contain or describe what's actually happening here. But I think language can provide some helpful pointers and ways of approaching this engagement with silence and this engagement with ourselves. So who is the self we take into the desert? Who is the self we face and discover? And in some of the books I've been reading, there's, there's terminology that talks about things like ego, false self, or small self. And I'm a little bit wary of some of that terminology because I think the danger is, like with everything, is that we make, try and make neat divisions that don't so easily exist in reality. But I, I guess I've also been thinking, well, what's helpful about this way of looking at it? And I think there is something that, um, say we take the term false self, that people talk about that that refers to the part of us that's been shaped by unmet need, insecurity, and fear. 
So probably it relates to that part of us that has been most fundamentally shaped in childhood. And that this self can build up defensive mechanisms and protective strategies to survive this world. And that it's this self that has learned to keep out the other because maybe the risk is too great. And it's the self that might be governed by I want, I need, I must. And so when people talk about the small self, they're talking about the self that has to stand at the centre and the world has to revolve around it because it doesn't want to get out of the way. It's like a small child demanding attention. And I think we all have part of that within us. And perhaps that is part of the self that we take into the desert with us, but it's very likely to resist the journey and to kick and scream all the way. But that this is the self we have to face if we're to know the joy and freedom of, I guess, giving and loving, which does involve going beyond just our immediate needy self. We can also refer to this self as the wounded self or the shadow self because perhaps it's the part of us that we'd rather not see, the part that we hide away, that we're most reluctant to welcome and allow to come out into the open. And this is because this is the place of our pain, anger, shame, weakness and frustration. But this wounded self has to be welcomed and received if we're to become whole. Christians can understand this self as Christ, that Jesus identifies with the most damaged part of us, and that when we accept and love this part, we're accepting and loving Christ within us, the crucified and wounded one. And I thought I'd like to share um, an extract from this book by Henri Nguyen, and it's called um, The Inner Voice of Love. And he wrote this book when he went through probably the most difficult period of his life. It was a time of personal crisis when a relationship that meant a lot to him broke down. And it says on the back that he suddenly lost his self-esteem, his energy to live and work, his sense of being loved, even his hope in God. And he was a kind of respected spiritual writer and he really had a, a sort of internal collapse. And, but as part of it, he wrote himself a daily journal and he almost wrote to himself, he wrote instructions to himself in order to try and get himself through this really, really difficult and painful time. And so there are two extracts I want to read, but the first extract um, I think addresses this, this perhaps one of the most difficult areas. Um, and it's called, Go into the place of your pain. You have to live through your pain gradually and thus deprive it of its power over you. Yes, you must go into the place of your pain but only when you've gained some new ground. When you enter your pain, simply to experience it in all its rawness, it can pull you away from where you need to go. What is your pain? It is the experience of not receiving what you most need. It is a place of emptiness where you feel sharply the absence of the love you most desire. To go back to that place is hard because you are confronted there with your wounds as well as with your powerlessness to heal yourself. You are so afraid of that place that you think of it as a place of death. 
Your instinct for survival makes you run away and go looking for something else that can give you a sense of at-homeness, even though you know full well that it can't be found out in the world. You have to begin to trust that your experience of emptiness is not the final experience, that beyond it is a place where you are being held in love. As long as you do not trust that place beyond your emptiness, you cannot safely re-enter the place of pain. So you have to go into the place of your pain with the knowledge in your heart that you have already found the new place. You have already tasted some of its fruits. The more roots you have in the new place, the more capable you are of mourning the loss of the old place and letting go of the pain that lies there. You cannot mourn something that has not died. Still, the old pain attachments and desires that want meant so much to you need to be buried. You have to weep over your lost pain so that they can gradually leave you and you can become free to live fully in the new place without melancholy or homesickness. So I do think that this is part of the journey into the desert. But we do make the journey so that we can move, perhaps through that part of ourselves that's been wounded, to experience a deeper sense of reconciliation and peace with who we are. So that part of this journey is a journey of reconciliation, so that we can forgive and release that which we've been held on to, that which we have held on to and been held by. I think it's interesting, something you can Google if you're interested is um, Thomas Keating was one of a group of Trappist monks who first developed the practice of centering prayer in the 1970s, partly because loads of sort of hippies were knocking on their door and they were all heading out to eastern forms of practice because they said, we need a practice, you know, we need a practice. So they started looking within the Christian tradition and within their own practice and they developed centering prayer that has become a major sort of movement. And he believes that this form of prayer is effective because it bypasses the conscious mind. And he talks about that it leads to, he uses the word, evacuation of the unconscious. He calls it divine therapy because he believes that gradually the hurts and wounds of a lifetime come up to the surface in this process. But he does say that the, it's a slow process and it's also a gentle process. But he's done a lot of work, I think, on linking psychological and spiritual transformation. But I guess I want to finish by saying that I, th I believe that the journey into the heart, which is mysterious and multifaceted, um, is an invitation perhaps to live from a deeper and perhaps um, solid, not in the sense of staying the same, but a reliable place. I guess we'd want to call it a home place. And that this is the place where God dwells within us. It's the place we come to realize that we're not alone, that we are loved, and we're part of the divine, I mean, I'm going to call it dance, that exists at the heart of reality and to which we're invited. Um, so I'm going to finish just by reading another extract that he wrote to himself. And it's called Trust in the Place of Unity. You are called to live out of a new place, beyond your emotions, passions and feelings. 
As long as you live amid your emotions, passions and feelings, you will continue to experience loneliness, jealousy, anger, resentment and even rage. Because those are the most obvious responses to rejection and abandonment. You have to trust there is another place to which your spiritual guides, he, these are the people he was actually seeing, want to lead you and where you can be safe. Maybe it's wrong to think this new place is beyond emotions, passions and feelings. Beyond could suggest that these human sentiments are absent there. Instead, try thinking about this place as the core of your being, your heart, where all human sentiments are held together in truth. From this place, you can feel, think and act truthfully. It is quite understandable that you are afraid of this place. You have so little knowledge of it. You've caught glimpses of it. You've been there at times, but for most of your life, you've dwelt among your emotions, passions, and feelings, and searched in them for inner peace and joy. Also, you have not fully acknowledged this new place as the place where God dwells and holds you. You fear that this truthful place is a place, is in fact a bottomless pit, where you will lose all you have and are. Do not be afraid. Trust that the God of life wants to embrace you and give you true safety. You might consider this the place of unification, where you can become one. Right now, you experience an inner duality. Your emotions, passions and feelings seem separate from your heart. The needs of your body seem separate from your deeper self. Your thoughts and dreams seem separate from your spiritual longing. You are called to unity. That is the good news of the Incarnation. The Word became flesh, and thus a new place is made where all of you and all of God can dwell. When you have found that unity, you will be truly free. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net. Mm-hmm.